welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. I'm so excited to be finishing up our oxymoronic faith series this morning. If you got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Luke chapter 23, Luke 23. Uh, If you spend a lot of time studying the Bible, it doesn't take very long to uh, start to understand that there are some characters in Christian history who may not necessarily be in the Bible, but are still important to the growth of the church. We call these people some of the early church fathers, the the historians of the early church. And, And what happened is after the disciples began to die off the followers who had been baptized who might not have seen who might not have seen Jesus might not have learned from him but they had learned from the apostles begin to realize how important it was to carry on the tradition of the church and carry on the message of Jesus Christ one of those individuals was a man named Polycarp and I know what you're thinking Next time I have a child, I'm going to name my child Polycarp because that's an awesome, I'm looking over here, that's an awesome name to be naming a kid is Polycarp, isn't it? Polycarp was a disciple of John the Apostle. And uh, as a uh, matter of fact, most people believe Polycarp may have been the last person alive who had personally learned under one of the 12 disciples. So Polycarp was, was really highly esteemed in the early church, and he ended up becoming the, uh, the bishop or the pastor of the church at Smyrna. About the time that he was growing older in Smyrna, there was a persecution of Christians. And, and the problem was is these Christians had these weird practices like, like gathering together and, and weird practices is like loving their enemies and they refused to do things they felt like dishonored God. They refused to do things like sacrifice to Roman gods or burn incense to Roman gods and for that reason they begin to gather members of the church of Smyrna and they begin to persecute them. They would pull them out in an arena and they would say here, here is your possibilities. You can deny Christ and walk free or we have all of these special ways of killing you that you're just going to love. And so they tried to get these Christians to backtrack, to backtrack their love of Christ, to backtrack their profession of the gospel. But what they found is is Polycarp's church, the members of this church, were so in love with Christ that they were willing to give their lives, and, and many of them were martyred. After about 11 or 12 of these members of Polycarp's church were martyred for the cause of Jesus Christ, there was this mob mentality and said, you know who's making them so strong? Who's teaching them all this? It's Polycarp. Let's go arrest Polycarp. Let's bring him here and persecute him. And that will be the end of the Christian movement in Smyrna. You get rid of this figure and Christianity will die. And so a mob of people goes to arrest Polycarp and drag him to his death. Polycarp knows they are coming and he has this opportunity to escape and and people are trying to convince him, Polycarp, you've got to get out of here. We need you. And and Polycarp says, no, no, no. God's will be done. I'll wait for them right here. I'll wait till they get here. And when this mob of angry people arrives to arrest Polycarp, they're astounded at what they find down the stairs of this house that Polycarp was hiding in. Here comes Polycarp, 86 years old, feeble, and he says, I've been, I've been waiting for you. And they're shocked at how calm he is. He's not like others they had arrested. He doesn't try to run away. He doesn't freak out. He, he doesn't call them names. He just he, he says, here I am. Are you guys, are you looking for me? He then ordered his servants, bring them, bring them food and drinks. 
And for the next two hours, they couldn't arrest this man because he prayed over these people who were about to take him to his death. For two hours, they sat there quietly, eating snacks and drinking wine, while Polycarp prayed over them, waiting for him to stop so that they can arrest him. Polycarp was then dragged before the council, and they said to him, you know, deny Christ or else we'll kill you. And they gave him the first opportunity. said, we will feed you to our wild animals. This was a way that they tortured Christians as they would cover them in the blood of an animal, and they would release them in a pen with a tiger or a bear or a lion, and they would cheer as this person was torn limb from limb by this wild animal. They said, Polycarp, that will be you, unless, just deny Christ. And Polycarp said, I will not deny Christ. And they said, well, if you don't do that, we'll, we will bypass the animals. We will just burn you alive. Don't, don't you fear the fire? And Polycarp responded, said, you have no understanding of what happens when somebody dies and they burn after. He said, I will not deny Christ. I will give my life for the cause of Christ. And at 86 years old, they begin to gather wood and they place a stake in the middle of it. And Polycarp very, very gently very calmly, he begins to pull his clothes off in his sandals. And he walks calmly to where they're piling the wood up. And at this time, it was customary when somebody was executed by being burned at the stake, they would nail them to the stake, almost like a crucifixion. The thought was that when it gets hot, they're gonna try to get away, but they won't be able to be uh, pulled away from being nailed to the stake. And so they came to Polycarp with the nails. And this is what he said to them. He said, God will give me the power and strength to endure the fire without the help of your nails. And he stepped up there and he voluntarily gave his life, being burnt alive for the cause of Christ. What I love about Polycarp, on top of the fact that he's an early church father, is that his, his death is marked with peace and patience and love and kindness and endurance and we have to ask this question is, how does somebody face their death that calmly? It's almost like he looked forward to it. He could have ran and he chose not to run. He, he could have struggled, he chose not to struggle, but he, he calmly accepts his death. What is it about Polycarp? What is it about Polycarp that he can face death this way? And this is one out of a thousand stories of Christians who faced death in the same way, where people at their death record that they were eerily calm that they almost seem joyful and happy to lose their life. What is it about a person that makes them face death that way? We, we see this pattern in those who Jesus called around him. Though, though the 12 that he called to him, and we've been studying some of those 12 over the past few weeks in our oxymoronic faith series, that they had been with Jesus and they had seen Jesus as, as he went and he healed sinners and he ate with the unworthy and he called to him disciples who, who had nothing to, to offer Jesus. And Jesus walks beside them on their journey. He walks beside them in this journey in life. He teaches them. He loves them. He eats with them. And the only thing all of these people have in common is they're all headed to the same place. They're all headed to death. And Jesus comes along this journey on the road to death with them. And he walks beside them in every sense of the word to fulfill his ultimate purpose of being the sacrificial lamb. So they can face death with the same calmness that Polycarp did. Today, I want to look at where Jesus takes his life, where his life ends up. If you've got your Bibles open, we're going to be in Luke 23. This is verse 33. 
And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Keep your Bibles open. We're gonna come back to that passage. But, but this tells us where Jesus came through. Jesus comes into this life and he walks alongside sinners and he walks along with them right up to death with them. And this doesn't make sense to me. This, this series, Oxymoronic Faith, has been all about things that don't fit together. It's been about God's love and our actions. It's been about our sins and his forgiveness. And here we have Jesus and death, two things that should never come in contact. Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. Jesus, Jesus himself identified himself as the living water. And here we have Jesus coming into contact with death in a way that, that death will have the victory. Now, as we look at this verse, it's very important to look at the placement of Jesus. Where was Jesus when he died? Uh, the first thing we know about this place where Jesus gave his life is that it was, it was outside the city gates. Uh, think about a city, and, and in old times, all cities had this wall that went around it. And this wall was for protection of the people who lived there. <clears throat> Live, it's both me and you this morning. Goodness, it's something about being up here. This wall would have went around the city to protect the people within it. And that wall was a definite dividing line. The, those, those who were loved and those who were a part of society were allowed in the walls and they could be behind the gates if an enemy was to come. But anybody who lived outside the walls, they were vulnerable. They, they, they were by themselves. They were outcasts and they were lonely. And so we see the place where Jesus died outside the walls is a place that tells us that Jesus was an outcast and he was rejected. Secondly, our Bible calls this place that he was crucified, called it a hill called Calvary. Now, in the original Hebrew, the, the name of this particular hill was Golgotha. And Golgotha literally translated means the place of the skull. The place of the skull. We, we get the English word Calvary because when this was translated into Latin, the, the, the Latin word for, for Golgotha was Calvarea Logos. I'm sorry, not Logos, Locus. So, Jesus was taken to this place called the place of the skull. Now, what do you think of when you think of a skull immediately? I, I bet you think of death, right? The, the skull has been a long time-honored tradition as a symbol of death. If you research skulls as a, um, as a symbol, it goes all the way back to the Black Plague, where they would take a skull, and that was the symbol that there was death in this house. The Black Death was here. In the mid-1800s, they decided that because bottles were not marked clearly enough, that poisons should be marked with a symbol that says, this will kill you if you ingest it. And that poison was marked with a skull and crossbones. We, we all know pirates who ravage, kill, and destroy flew a flag with what on it? A, a skull. And it's been a military, <clears throat> for some military units have used it to basically uh, intimidate their enemies with this symbol of death. And so we have this, this hill that is called Calvary, this hill called Golgotha, this hill that's called the place of the skull that symbolizes death that Jesus is taken to. But more importantly than that is it is a hill. They could have crucified Jesus in a valley. They could have crucified Jesus along a riverbank, but it was a hill that he was taken to. In the Bible, a hill or height represents authority. And so when we take all of this into effect, the hill of Golgotha, the place of the skull, is a place where death has authority. Jesus allows himself to be placed into a place where death has authority over him and over all those who come there. 
Now, we don't know why this place was named the place of the skull. There's, there's a couple of different places in Israel that they think might have been the Hill of Calvary. One of them has a couple of hollow places that look like eyes with a nose belonging. And it kind of looks like the face of a skull in the side of the mountain. And that's a very powerful picture of where Jesus may have been crucified on top of what would have actually looked like a skull. Other, people's belie- other people believe that it was another hill and it was just known as the place of the skull because when the Romans executed you, they wanted you to be made an example of and so they would leave your body to hang there and rot and everybody who passed in and out of the city would see the remains of those who had defied Rome. As those bodies deteriorated and fell off, the skulls would be left just laying around. And so some people believe that this hill was identified as the place of the skull because of the human bones that were left there. But, but in either way, we know this, that this place represented a place where death had authority. And Jesus, the giver of all life, is taken to this place where death has authority. And there he's placed in between two criminals, two sinners. And we don't know what their crime was. A lot of people call them the two thieves on the cross, but the Bible never says that. And historically, it's probably not the fact that they were thieves. That is not a crucifiable offense. But they were probably rebels against Rome. That's who crucifixion was usually saved for. And here we have Jesus in this place where death has authority. In between two people who have earned their death by breaking the laws of the country, giving his life for you and me. Our first take-home truth is this, is that hatred, sin, and death were given. And when you write given, underline it or write it in bold letters, were given victory over Jesus. And here in this place, Jesus, Jesus Christ, he faced the most horrific punishment that humans have ever dreamed up. As Jesus was waiting his crucifixion, he was, he was taken and he was beaten. He was beaten with whips that had rocks and nails and pieces of metal in them. And it just, it ripped his flesh. And we tend to think of this in our minds like, like Jesus had some scratches on his back or Jesus had some lacerations. But, th- but this kind of whipping would leave somebody with strips of flesh hanging off of their back like tattered rags. And so before Jesus ever gets to the cross, he's, he's suffering from shock and blood loss and dehydration as his body tries to deal with the fact that his back and the muscles and the skin there were just ripped off of him. And in this condition, in this state of shock, Jesus carries his cross towards the place where death has authority. And he's already too weak to make it there. He's probably fortunate, and I don't know if he's fortunate, but most people didn't, li- or a lot of people didn't live through a Roman flogging. And as he walks to the place where death has the ultimate authority, he's too weak to carry his cross, and he has to be helped. When he comes to the place of the skull, they take and and they hang him on the cross by nails through his wrists and through his feet. It wouldn't have taken very long from being pulled up there that his shoulders would have been dislocated, and he would have to hang there on shoulders that were out of socket with nails through his wrists that ripped and tore, nails in his feet. But possibly the the worst part of crucifixion was not the nails, it wasn't the whipping. It was the point that crucifixion is is a slow suffocation. I don't know about you guys. Some of you guys are more athletic than me, but every once in a while, I'll get it in my head, I'm young. And, and I'll come up with these basketball players at school, or I'll, I'll come here and I'll play with our teenagers, and I'll, I'll try my best to, to run and jog and play basketball with them. And it ends up the same every time as I get to a point where I think I'm about to die because I just, it doesn't matter how long I huff and puff, I can't, I can't catch my breath. And that, that's a horrible thing to go through, even if it's only for 30 or, or, or 45 seconds where you're sitting there going, I can't get enough air. But, but crucifixion 
was like that for hours or days where you're constantly in a state of being out of air. You can never get a full breath. When your arms are stretched outward, that puts your chest in a place where you can inhale air, but in order to have the the muscle pressure to push air out of your lungs, you have to push yourself up and bring your arms lower. And so Jesus, sitting on the cross, every time he wanted to breathe, would have to pull against the nails in his wrists against the dislocated shoulders and push against the nail in his foot and pull himself up just far enough that he could push air out of his mouth and there he would fall again exhausted. And so Jesus constantly moving up and down the cross, rubbing that raw back against the rough wood, pulling and pushing against those nails, slowly suffocating to death alongside of the sinner's. The pain of crucifixion is like nothing else humans have ever endured. In fact, there is no word for this type of pain. And so a word was invented to describe what it was like to be crucified. And the word is excruciating. And while Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's going through this excruciating pain, the Bible records for us his interactions with other people. What Jesus did and what Jesus thought and what Jesus said and what Jesus put up with. Read with me here in verses 35 through 43. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with him derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a subscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanging railed against him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. So we have Jesus hanging on the cross, undergoing this horrible ordeal of crucifixion, dying and giving his life, shedding his blood for you and me and for the sins of the world. But he's also enduring the emotional and the psychological tor- um, torture of being mocked. They, they hang a sign above his head said, This is the king of Jews. And they call at him while he's hanging up there. He's like, hey, come down from there. I thought you were God. Oh, you can't? You can't get yourself free? (laughs) What happened to all the people that you helped? And you can't help yourself. And they were rubbing it in his face and proving this point that death has power over you, Jesus. If you were who you said you were, death would have no power. And one of the criminals joins in. And you have to think about the hatred that this man must have in him to be enduring this kind of a punishment and to, and to mock and joke along with others and to make fun of Jesus. And he says, yeah, Jesus, come down off that cross. While you're at it, bring me down too. But something amazing happens here. As this other criminal, this other man sentenced to death, he begins to argue. He says, hey, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't you understand that you and me, we deserve to be here. We earn this. But, but Jesus, Jesus didn't earn to be here. Don't mock him. 
he, he did nothing wrong. And then he says this. He turns to Jesus on the cross beside him. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What an odd thing to say to a dying man. What an odd man thing to say to a person who is nailed to a tree. I know, I know that you are going to rule over something. Would you, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And we see that this man has a special understanding of Jesus that most people don't understand. Even the disciples had a hard time understanding Jesus Christ when he said that he had a kingdom and he talked about the kingdom of heaven. They thought of it as an earthly kingdom, but this man is one of the first to look at Jesus and say, I understand that you've got a kingdom that surpasses life and death. And when you die, and when I die, will you remember me when you're in charge of this kingdom? Now, this is interesting to me that this criminal would say this, because we might look at this criminal and say, well, he's about to die. He's grasping at anything. He wants anybody, anywhere to give him some hope. And you might look at the criminal that way, but if you look at this story in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew tells us that both criminals, both criminals mocked Jesus. And so taking these two accounts together, we have a picture of a man who began to join in in the mocking of Jesus Christ, who, who questioned if he was God, who told him to come down off the cross. And sometime during the period of this crucifixion, he changed his mind about who Jesus was. What, what would cause this man in just a few hours that, that he hung beside Jesus, what would change him? What, what, what would make him see Jesus differently? Something had to have happened because watching Jesus agonize on the cross along with others beside him, that wouldn't have been enough. What was it about Jesus that this man saw and he realized he's special and he's different? If you go back up to verse 34, I think this is what the criminal saw. This is Jesus hanging on the cross and listen to what he says. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I love how Jesus treats people even as he hangs on the cross. People who mock him and they're cheering and they're celebrating his death. And what does Jesus do? Jesus could have called down fire and consumed them. Jesus could have struck them all dead. Even in the case of hanging on the cross, he could have took all their lives. But Jesus, in this pain, he takes time to pray for others. He takes time to love others. And the reason for this is is Jesus sees something that other people don't. Jesus is abnormal. Never in the history of the world up to this point had somebody been executed by the Romans and looked down while they're in the middle of this excruciating pain and said, I feel sorry for you. You need forgiveness. Never had somebody experienced this and thought about others at that moment. And here Jesus Christ is praying for others. And the reason for that, for that impossible kind of love that allows him to treat people differently than the way they've treated him, is Jesus has this amazing ability to see past the exterior of people. Jesus Christ walked and he encountered these religious elite who dressed the right way, who seemed perfect, who people revered as being holy, but Jesus could see their dark, dirty, prideful hearts. He could look past the outside and see the inside. Jesus could look at a bunch of Galilean fishermen, dirty, unlovable, and he could see them and look into them and look past their appearance and he could see them as the future leaders of the church. 
And Jesus could look past the exterior of those who mocked him, who celebrated his death. He could look past their angry countenance of his murderers, and he could see blindness. See, Jesus looked at God. Jesus looked at, at the Father, and he said, they, they're so blind. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. They, they don't know what this means. God, forgive them, because they, they just don't understand. And Jesus could see in these people that they had been blinded by fear and blinded by hurt and blinded by pain and blinded by anger and blinded by pride and blinded by sin. And they think that attacking Jesus and crucifying him is going to fix all of their problems. And they see Jesus as an enemy, but Jesus sees them as his friends. He sees them as friends who are caught in the trap of sin. And Jesus knows where this trap of sin leads. This trap of sin leads to death. This trap of sin leads to suffering. And this trap of sin will lead to eternal suffering unless, unless Jesus gives his life for them. Unless he dies for them. Unless he takes their sins upon himself. Unless he comes to rescue them. And never forget, we tend to look at the Bible like there's the good guys and there's the bad guys. But every person down there gambling for his clothes and cheering and mocking him, Jesus died for them in hopes that they would come to forgiveness, that they would come to repentance. Who else but Jesus could have that kind of passion? Who else but Jesus could see that in the people that were murdering him? This is our next take-home truth. Is grace is the ability to look past actions and see victims of sin. You and I, were Christians. And this is the man we worship. This is the God that we worship. A God who looks past our actions and he sees us as victims of sin, as people needing rescue. And he's willing to die for us to rescue us. Do you know what the word Christian means? The word Christian means to be Christ-like. And so when we become Christians, it means more than avoiding sin. It means that we are called to learn and apply the, we, the way Jesus interacted with the world to our lives. We're called to see people like Jesus did. We're called to see the world around us, to look past their actions and see people as victims of sin, as victims of a trap, of people who will suffer. And when, when the criminal saw this in Jesus, that Jesus saw people in a different way, he was amazed because he knew there is nobody in the world like Jesus. There's nobody in the world that looks at people that way. And I hope that's what people see in us. I hope people see in us that regular people don't see people the way that Christians see people. Regular people don't love the way the members of Ramsey Heights, uh, Ramsey Heights Church love. Regular people don't act that way. Regular people don't treat those kind of people with that kind of love. See, this world does not need more judgmental, angry Christians. It needs more Christians who see people as victims of their sin and whose hearts hurt for that purpose. And we see that in the case of the criminal on the cross, that this leads him to faith. And he just expresses that to Jesus. Jesus, remember me. Just remember who I am. Would you remember me in this kingdom? He doesn't understand all of the theology of Jesus. 
He doesn't understand what it means to be a follower of Christ, but he knows that there's something special about Jesus Christ. He said, God, remember me. And I love Jesus' response to this. Jesus takes the time, not just to nod his head, Jesus takes the time to speak to him and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. What did I say earlier about crucifixion? In order to exhale was this horrible moment of pushing against the nail of your feet and pulling against the nails in your wrists and pulling against your dislocated shoulders and pushing you up to breathe out. When do we speak? When we breathe out. Jesus is showing grace on the cross and the fact that he's willing to speak to anybody. He's willing to endure more pain to give this man a glimpse of his future and a glimpse of hope. And this is the picture of grace of Jesus on the cross. That he is willing to suffer for us, to love us, to give us hope, and to save us from the trap of sin. We have to ask this question, though, is, Jesus, why this man? Why, why would you do that for this man? Like, pridefully, I can understand why you do that for me. I'm pretty great, Jesus. I, I can understand why you would do that for young children, but this man on the cross, this man's life has took him to a moment where he's about to die? He's lived a bad life and he has no time to make up for it. And Jesus sees more than you and I ever will. Jesus can look into this man and he can see his whole life. Every cuss word, every broken promise, everything he stole, every time he disobeyed laws, and every time he rejected God. And he looks at this man who has nothing to give. This man will never teach Sunday school. This man will never even go to church. This man will never have an opportunity to right his wrongs. This man will never have an opportunity to spread the gospel. He's in the last moments of his life. He has nothing to give to Jesus. Jesus, why this man? That tells us so much about Jesus Christ and the essence of grace. This is not about what we can give Jesus. It's about our imperfection being flooded over by his perfection with nothing but our faith and our belief and our trust in him as God of the world. That's all that Jesus Christ required of this man and it's all that he requires of us. So I guess that leads me to a question. If I'm hanging on the cross beside Jesus, is does Jesus really have the power to say to this man, you're gonna join me in paradise? That, that when we breathe our last breath, that's not all, and I have the power to determine your future. Does Jesus really have the ability to say that to this man? How do we know? Because last time I checked, Jesus is hanging on a cross, and death has authority over Jesus Christ in this moment. Can Jesus really say that? And after Jesus' last breath, they pull his body down, and they put it underground where they expect him to stay. But three days later when they come, they can't find his body. And then the Bible records that Jesus Christ began appearing to his believers and to the followers around him. You see, what the Bible tells us is that life will have victory and that Jesus has the final say over death. Death may have been given temporary authority over Jesus Christ, but it didn't last very long. Jesus claims his authority. This is our last take-home truth, is Jesus has and shares his victory over death. Think about that word for a second. He shares his victory over death. And this is the reason we can trust him. And this is the reason death has no sting for believers and followers of Christ. This is the reason believers like Polycarp can calmly walk to their own death and almost look forward to it. 
because Jesus Christ overcame the grave and he has promised to share that victory of death with over, over us. Live if you want to head this way. You may be here today and, and to you, crucifixion, crucifixion may have just been a story that you learned in church. It may have been something that we talked about on Easter, the story of a good man a long time ago who lived a long, long time ago, but you may have never thought of, of what the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus actually means. That Jesus would go to a place where death has authority and he would give up his life and that he would love that radically and that all Jesus asks is faith and belief in him. It's nothing that you can earn. It's nothing that you can do. Otherwise, Jesus couldn't have promised that criminal he would be in paradise with him. No, it's something that he gives us freely. And today, all it takes to experience that is to surrender and admit that, that Jesus is the Lord of the world and allow him to be the Lord of your life because you know that. If you've never made that decision, if this is speaking to you, I would love to pray with you and talk with you and counsel you through what it means to have faith in Christ.